Romans 12, verse 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be patient. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, Welcome again to First Free. My name is Matt. If I have not met you, serve as pastor here. And we are in this uh, sermon series during the season of Epiphany called The Baby Changes Everything. And it's just off this idea that when you have a baby or a baby shows up in your house, uh, it it changes everything. Got to rearrange the furniture. Your relationships change. Um... Almost nothing stays exactly the same as it was. And so we're just applying that same principle to when the Son of God is birthed into the world. It changes uh, everything. It changes everything. And uh, the way it changes everything is Jesus becomes the new center. The new center of everything. And this series is adapted from uh, a ministry called Jesus Collective. Uh, which is a movement seeking to resource a more Jesus-centered Christianity. So I'm using a lot that they share with us. Um, When I say Jesus becomes the center, I'm really giving off this uh, image of like the sun is the center of, you know, our solar system and everything circles around the sun, receives its uh, heat and warmth from the sun, has its gravitational pull towards the center that is the sun. Jesus is that kind of center. The gravitational pull for our community ought to be Jesus. And at first we talked about how this relates to uh, the Bible and our image of God as a whole in the first week. That Jesus isn't just sort of the nice, soft side of God, um, and that there's all these other images of God, But according to Paul in Colossians and Jesus as he talks about himself, Jesus is the complete, 
the best picture of God that we have. And that means when we read scripture, we read it through the lens of Jesus. Last week, we addressed sort of the problems of individualism and how that turns into, in our current day and age, this epidemic of loneliness and how we have to shift our gospel from a simply sort of me-centered understanding of perhaps just me and God or my ticket into heaven that the gospel offers into something uh, much, much bigger, the renewal of all things that Jesus talks about. And today, we get to talk about power. And power is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not perhaps what would be my first choice to talk about. So that's why I dressed in at least my most uh, Mr. Rogers-y type outfit. Because I could say anything in this and you'll be like, wow, what a sweet man, right? I got a cardigan on. I got a cardigan on. So hopefully that eases and makes everything a bit more palatable as we talk about power. Let me pray. God, um, we are all gathered here to meet with you. And um, whether we know it or not, whether we can sense it or not, whether we believe it or not, you are already here longing to meet with us. You are already speaking. You are already drawing us into your family, into your kingdom. And so I pray that you'd give us the ability to uh, hear that, that our, our spiritual ears would become more attuned to what you're saying and doing in our midst. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, our age is characterized by this Intense polarization. Intense polarization. And uh, if you wanted to, you could blame it all on the internet. You, you really could. You don't have to. There's all these other forces, but it is largely because of the internet, right? Increasing numbers of people have fallen into these echo chambers where the only voices they hear are the voices that affirm whatever they want to hear. Um, and, and again, this is on either side of the polarization. And what happens then is you're continually affirmed in your view, and your views can become radicalized, very radicalized. And your capacity to empathetically understand the opposing perspective, or even just coherently understand, forget empathy, even just to coherently understand the opposite perspective can become almost impossible because you're only hearing voices that affirm your views. And as a result, we in the West are quickly losing what perhaps once was a shared trust in our foundational institutions, perhaps some norms in society, some values, some practices. At its best... Political dialogue in a democratic context used to be about finding common ground for the good of the whole. Can you imagine if that's what political dialogue was about now? It's sort of degenerated into being mostly about defeating the opposite side. 
Political opponents are no longer reasonable fellow citizens with whom we happen to disagree, but now they are increasingly viewed as, quote, enemies of the state or destroyers of democracy or simply as evil, tools of Satan. And not surprisingly, when you begin naming your enemies in those terms, there begins to be some escalating violence, just with our words at first, in our public discourse. But then, those escalating violent words turn into violent action. We've seen that threats to our political leaders have spiked And there's even a talk of civil war in certain areas of our country. And it's not only politics. Violence is permeating our culture in so many ways. For example, in 2022, America averaged over two mass shootings per day. Um. You know, you can do the math. What There's 365 days a year times two. So something over 700 mass shootings, which they define as any shooting with four or more people uh, killed or injured, a day. So two a day. And, and we know all too well that this happens in schools, right, with the youngest kids. And so children and teachers have been terrorized. Uh, Some have been murdered in their own classrooms. And at the same time, um, increasingly since COVID, there has been more violence towards other minority groups, towards different Asian groups, towards Jews, Palestinians, violence towards the LGBTQ plus community. It's been on the rise. And While significant steps have been taken to attempt to rectify the problem of police uh, brutality, police using excessive force, sometimes even lethal force, it's still too common, especially among black people. And then, of course, we have to talk about Putin's unprovoked and ruthless war on Ukraine and the massive amount of suffering and death it has brought. And within it comes a very concerning talk of using nuclear weapons again. And I'll be honest, I don't even know how to speak about what's going on in Gaza and the Middle East right now. All I know is that it's not what God desires in the land where Jesus once walked and lived. We live in a violent day and age. Violence, in its simplest terms, is anything that violates the intrinsic worth of something. Anything that violates the intrinsic worth of something. That's how I want to talk about it. So yes, there is violence that can be done to another... But there's also violence that we can do to ourselves. Anytime that you don't honor the intrinsic worth you have as someone made in the very image of God, you do violence to yourself. 
This applies to humans, but also to animals and to the very earth God made. See, God loves everything that God has made. And God is therefore grieved at different uh, practices that promote violence towards his good creation. Things like the industrial farming industry that treat animals as a commodity. Or many other modern industries that use our planet simply as goods to be sold. Contributing to the pollution of our oceans. Contributing to Earth's rising temperature. Violence is anything that violates the intrinsic worth of something. And uh, I'd venture to say that at the root of, of all this chaos, all of this violence, is almost always the lust for power. For coercive power to protect ourselves by any means necessary. Or the power to advance our own self-interest. Or the power to defeat our enemies and impose our will on others. And of course, the power to manipulate nature to our own advantage. The lust for power is found in individuals, right? But it's also found in social groups, institutions, corporations. There's even nations who have a lust for power. Most violence towards humans, as well as toward the earth and the animal kingdom is a direct result of longing for this kind of power, coercive power. Now, if you've ever felt powerless, most of us have in different situations, some of us feel it often, if you've ever felt powerless, it makes sense why you'd lust for this kind of power. It feels terrible not being in control of things. I mean, doesn't it? Have you ever felt powerless? It feels terrible. And first instinct is just, I've got to regain some sense of control, however that can happen. It feels terrible not being able to control things. So what do we do as followers of Jesus when we feel powerless? That's the question I want to ask, and it's no small question. What do we do as followers of Jesus when we feel powerless? Individually? Collectively? What do we do? The truth is you and I, when we feel powerless, will always be tempted to grasp at any power and control we can, and oftentimes by any means necessary, Make no mistake, we will be tempted to use violence when it's necessary. And some Christians will tell you that's okay. That's okay. It's simply the way the world works. When things are as bad as they are today, some rhetoric is going, it's justified. Christian nationalists, in particular, they want you to fight to get power back in your country. According to them, America is a Christian nation. It was founded as one and always should be one. And so we have a duty to God to make sure that uh, particularly conservative uh, Christian values are upheld by law. 
It doesn't sound too bad when you first say it, but this rhetoric is what ended up fueling the insurrection on January 6th, three years ago, where power-hungry people were holding Trump flags and giant crosses, and they stormed the Capitol. That was their answer to the question, what do followers of Jesus do when they feel powerless? Take back power by any means necessary. On a closer scale, I have a a, a close friend who I, I deeply love. He is one of the smartest, kindest, most generous Christians that I know. And he was raised that way by his parents. Right? It didn't just happen. His parents instilled that in him. And they happened to be um, very, very wealthy. His parents, they're smart people. They're kind people. And around the time of COVID, they, they started, and they had never done this in their life, but they started taking um, shooting lessons how do you use firearms? You know, they started taking some lessons on how to do that. And as very wealthy people, they started looking into buying land in Montana. And why? Why would they do this all of a sudden in 2020? Because the rhetoric they were hearing and buying into and seeing was that this country is going the way of the devil. And we need to be willing to fight and protect ourselves in order to get it back. That was their answer to the question. People who had felt they had power most of their life losing it. What do we do as followers of Jesus when we feel powerless? What's your answer to that question? What do you do? What do we do? as followers of Jesus when we feel or are powerless. God's answer, according to Scripture, is the cross. The cross. Which, let's just be honest, when you actually feel powerless, the cross feels foolish, stupid, idiotic, unwise, certainly impractical. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. In 18 through 25, he says that while the cross looks foolish and weak to the world... Those of us who have faith are to know that the cross is both the wisdom and the power of God. There's this theological word that nerds love called omnipotence. Omnipotence. All-powerful. It's this idea that God is omnipotent. All-powerful. It means God is utterly, completely, entirely powerful. And get this. When God chooses to display God's omnipotence, Paul is saying, 
It looks like Jesus dying a torturous death on a cross. It looks foolish, he says. So God power, in other words, is the transforming power of Christ's cruciform, cross-shaped love. This is why Paul says that it is by means of the cross, we have this verse up from Colossians, that God is reconciling everything to God and to one another. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's why we said Jesus is the image of God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's why we said the gospel is bigger than just me and Jesus. By making peace, how? By kicking everybody else's butts that disagree with him. By making peace through his blood shed on a cross. And that's why we say that power looks different for the Christian. And Paul talks about the natural mind. He's like, with, with our natural mind, we cannot see this power. This power of self-sacrificial love. But he says, we who follow Jesus, because of the spirit at work within us, we're called to trust that this kind of power is the strongest force in the universe. And that is foolish. Whereas violence is the twin brother of coercive power, peace is the twin brother of cruciform power, of the power of the cross. And while it sometimes is extremely costly to implement... The power of self-sacrificial love is the only kind of power that can actually change someone. So really, coercive power is pretty foolish if you think it's going to bring about real change in any human or society's life. What do I mean by that? Only cruciform power, self-sacrificial love can actually free an embittered person to offer or to receive forgiveness. Coercive power can never do that. Only cruciform power, self-sacrificial love, can actually transform a sinner into a saint, can transform an enemy into a friend. Coercive power will never do that. The power of the cross does not seek to oppress or enslave others. It rather seeks to liberate and empower others. One question we have to ask, according to Greg Boyd and Leanne Friesen, is this. In a social context in which everyone clamors for the power to get their way at the expense of others, at the expense of God's good creation, here's the question. What would it look like for the church to model a radically different and altogether beautiful kind of power in the process of pointing people to a radically different and altogether beautiful God? 
A polarized church has nothing to offer a polarized society. A church in love with coercive power has nothing to offer a society in love with coercive power. Their question, what would it look like for the church to model a radically different and altogether beautiful kind of power? Can you imagine that kind of power? Because that would point people to a radically different and altogether beautiful God. In this case, Jesus gives us a bit of an answer of what that might look like. Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples on how they should respond to enemies. And it's almost the exact opposite of what we tend to find in this world. In this world, it's considered pretty normal to respond in kind. right? When someone verbally or emotionally or physically attacks you, you do the same back to them. We see this all over Twitter or X, uh, and all over the place, right? Quid pro quo. But by contrast, Jesus prohibits his disciples from retaliating when they've been wronged. We know this verse. If someone strikes us on the right cheek, Jesus says, offer your left cheek as well. Now, I want to give a caveat here. Remember, Our definition of violence is anything that violates the intrinsic worth of something. Well, what does that say about my worth? If I let someone hit me twice without defending myself. And so we look a little bit into the original context. See, it's a apparent here that Jesus wasn't suggesting that we should simply allow people to abuse us. This would not be loving to ourselves or ultimately to our would-be abuser. Rather, in first century Palestine, Roman soldiers frequently struck the right cheek of Jewish peasants with the back of their left hand. This hand. Kind of hard to do this backwards to your own self, but back of the left hand to the right cheek. And this was considered a humiliating gesture to be struck with the left hand, let alone the back of it. But by offering up their left cheek, Jesus' Jewish disciples were essentially refusing to accept the humiliation intended by this strike. It was a way of saying, essentially, if you're going to strike me, you'll have to do so as my equal, not my superior. Sometimes it can seem like a a binary. You can put up this next slide here. There are only two options. One is resorting to violence on the one hand, Right? Violently fight back. And this violates the intrinsic worth of the abuser, of the person fighting you. You say, forget you, I'm going to fight you back. Just as hard. Or, on the other hand, uh, do nothing at all, which sometimes we read that verse as. Right? Just, you got hit once, take it again. Take it again, take it again. You're a doormat. You're not worth it anyways. You're not worth 
much. And that violates the intrinsic worth of the person being abused. But Jesus points us to a third way, right? A way that disrupted the oppressive power structure that subordinated Jews to Romans, and that was by offering that other cheek. It's saying, I won't fight back, but it's also saying, you're going to have to view me as another human being and see if change happens there. The third way response is loving to oneself, for we're refusing to be defined by the wrong being done to us. But it's also loving towards the wrongdoer, for our nonviolent response exposes the wrongfulness of our aggressor's action. And therefore, it actually opens up the possibility that they will repent of their aggression and perhaps even become reconciled to us. Paul teaches along these lines in what we read today from Romans. In writing to a persecuted church, right? We have to remember that. A church that on many fronts felt and were significantly more powerless than the church in America is today, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's enough right there, but we can continue on, beginning in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. My goodness, Martin Luther King's teachings on this are incredible, profound. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it is possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge you. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, that last line there, that's really that third way as well. Do not become, or do not be overcome by evil. That'd be essentially doing nothing. But overcome evil with what? Not with evil. That'd be the first choice of violence. With good. It's a stance of nonviolent power. The end goal is to overcome evil with good. How do we do that? Well, Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. The the image of burning coals is, is this idea of someone coming under conviction. Someone being convicted of what they're doing. They're they're under these burning coals. Paul's suggesting that by responding to aggression with love, rather than violently defending ourselves, we expose the wrongfulness of the action being perpetrated against us. We expose 
the wrongfulness of the action being perpetrated against us. That is powerful to do, to bring light to what is trying to live in darkness. As we saw with Jesus' teaching, this opens up the possibility that our aggressor will wake up. Perhaps they'll turn away from the wrongfulness of their actions against us. Now, I want to be clear here that Paul and Jesus are not encouraging us to simply be receivers of abuse. I've said that, but I want to make it even more clear. Jesus, even in going to the cross, was not a helpless receiver of abuse. He made it clear. No one takes his life from him, he says. He chooses to lay it down. Sacrifice is only possible, is only powerful, is only meaningful if you have the choice not to make it. This is what Jesus says, John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. I think this verse is on there. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. Do you hear the choice? The agency? The freedom of sacrifice in these words? That's why Jesus, even talking about losing his own life, says, I have power. You are not going to dehumanize me. Yet, I will not retaliate in violence against you. It it doesn't allow for abuse. Jesus uh, does not encourage you to receive abuse. If you need to leave a situation where you are being abused spiritually, emotionally, physically, please do what you can to leave and seek help. However, I do want to say that what can happen after someone has received abuse and then leaves and comes into a place of power themselves, they can very easily become the abuser at that point. They can continue the cycle, and Jesus will not have that either. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to teach us that while the world considers it normal to love friends and hate enemies, disciples of Jesus are to love, pray for, and do good to our enemies. Importantly, Jesus tells his disciples to do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See that in the middle there. So that you may be, do this, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying, that we make it clear that we are children of our Father in heaven when we love the way our Father loves. That's how we show that we are children of this God. And then he goes on to say how the Father loves. The Father loves the way the sun shines and the way rain falls. 
The sun warms people up and rain gets people wet regardless of whether they are evil or good, it says. Whether they're righteous or unrighteous. So too, God loves indiscriminately. And this is precisely how God's children are called and empowered to love. So I want to draw us back to that question. What do we do as followers of Jesus when we feel powerless? The wise sages known as uh, public enemy, or if you're a little bit older and prefer a more funky bass line, the Isley Brothers would advise to fight the power. Now, I'm sure that Paul would not agree with every jot and tittle of either of their music, but Paul makes a similar point when he declares that in Ephesians 6.12, quote, our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, it often seems like other people, other humans, are the problem. Paul is saying, your fellow man, fellow humans, fellow people are never actually our real enemies. And thus should never be an opponent we fight against. Our real struggle is against rebel principalities and powers that are continually working to turn humans against one another, precisely by getting us to identify a fellow human as an enemy. Don't fight the person. Fight the power. The way that we resist and fight these powers is by refusing to identify a fellow human as our enemy and by refusing to not love them. In the end, we're either resisting the powers or we're being played by the powers. Don't get played, friends. Now, you may be in agreement with my reading of the way of Jesus and nodding along and thinking, this is great, or maybe you've had an objection over and over again. It's fine either way. But none of us can get away from the fact that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. In the simplest, purest application from all that we discussed today is simply that. Love your enemies. So, in closing, I do want to give you a question and give you a couple minutes to actually think about it. If, now, as you're thinking about this, if someone or something comes to mind, uh, please do something about it. Share it with a friend. Write it down in a journal. 
Do whatever you can. Don't let it go unspoken or unwritten. Don't let the conviction God gives you today simply be a memory by tomorrow. Okay? So here's the question. Quite simply, who are your enemies right now? And what might it look like to love them with your prayers, thoughts, and actions? Who are your enemies right now? Trust me, you have some. I have some. We all have some. Take a moment. If you're like, ah, no one's really coming to mind. Press into that with God. I'm going to actually give you two minutes to do this. Put it on my phone. And uh, then I'll come back up, say a couple more things. Sometimes it's obvious when we take the time to reflect in a space like this who our enemies are. But other times it doesn't come to us so clearly. And we may need to take the time to sort of begin noticing in day-to-day life as it happens who offends or uh, triggers us in real time. Those people might not come to mind in a a setting like this, but when we're actually living our day-to-day life in an attentive way, 
it might become more clear who they are. So, as a regular feature of your day-to-day life as a Jesus follower, could you cultivate the habit of loving people by setting aside whatever negative judgments a stranger may trigger in you and simply agree with God in that moment that each person we encounter has insurmountable worth. This is proven because God paid an insurmountable price for them. Then, pray a quiet blessing over their life. In other words, when you walk past someone on the street whose very look seems to go against every value you hold, whatever that is for you, they have ripped clothes, they have blue hair, they have a MAGA hat on, What if you said, in your head, perhaps under your breath, God, bless your child who you dearly love and help me to love like my Father in heaven. Or when you read that tweet or or Facebook post by the Christian nationalist, I'm talking to myself here, or by the progressive Christian, if that's you or whoever rubs you the wrong way, Remember to bless instead of curse. And do it again and again and again and again and again. The principle applies to everything. It's a maxim. We don't get good at anything we do not practice. So spend some time flexing your enemy-loving muscle. Begin in small ways and see who God will have you love as you grow. In that place. Spend some time flexing that muscle in prayer. Towards the end of Jesus' life, he was being arrested. And his friend Peter had a sword. And Peter loved Jesus and didn't want to see him go. And he felt powerless. So he took his sword and he went to attack the guard and he Chopped off his ear. If there was ever a time when violence would be justified, it would be in protecting the only human who has actually lived an innocent and perfect life. It would be in defense of the one innocent human in history. And yet Jesus rebukes Peter. He doesn't even say anything to the guard in anger. He heals the guard's ear. He rebukes Peter and he reminds Peter, listen, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. That will be the defining quality of your life. And I'm telling you, friend, that's not life. And then Jesus says, as if they didn't get it, If I wanted to use violence, you realize I could call down legions of angels right now. I've got the power. I have power. 
I am not being forced into this. But instead, Jesus chooses in his agency to die at the hands of his enemies and out of love for those enemies. And so this table with the bread and the wine, the juice, the the body and blood of Jesus becomes a table of enemy love, of cruciform, cross-shaped love. You and I, all of us, at one time were enemies of God. And I'm so grateful for the way God chooses to use power to reconcile us to him, inviting us into friendship with God. 